Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices, Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Not only was Coy McGinnis an excellent preacher of the word, but he was also a very gifted songwriter. One of his songs was born out of personal tragedy that came into his life. Sometimes in revival meeting, he would take a service and talk about it. And you're going to enjoy it on this edition of Convention Pulpit. I know you're going to enjoy what you're about to hear. Keep passing it on and on. That song means a lot to me. For it was, it was that and one other song that was so near to us in our in our time of trial. And I don't know what the Lord would be pleased for me just a little while this afternoon to share some of that with you. Most of you know the circumstances, but for those who don't, it was back in 1975 when we were moving from Delaware, Ohio, to Portsmouth, Ohio, where we live at the present time. My wife had been ill. We were expecting a, we were expecting another child, and my wife had been very sick. We finally somehow managed to get moved, and after we had settled in our present location or near to there, we sought medical attention for her, and somehow the doctor that we got a hold of evidently wasn't too competent. And so while he was away at Toledo or Cleveland or somewhere watching the Cincinnati Reds and some other ball game or ball team, play ball, my wife fell desperately ill. I rushed her to the emergency room. And she was in there a week long, and, and we lost a child. She lost the baby. I nearly lost my wife. And I remember with my back up against the concrete wall, a block wall of that hospital, watching the nurses and the doctors run with vials of blood and all kinds of special equipment and code blue on the on the intercom. I remember with my back up against that block wall how I prayed. And I said, Lord, I don't know how in this world I can go back out there. He's living on a little in little place up on the hillside. I said, I don't know how in this world I can go back out there on that hillside and tell five boys that they don't have a mother. 
But I said, I've gone all up and down this countryside and preached and told people that the grace of God would keep you in an hour of distress and dilemma. And I said, if, if it please you, Lord, we'd love to keep her with us. But nevertheless, thy will be done. And I spent some anxious hours, Brother Carroll, that old hospital hall. And the nurses were so busy they couldn't stop and answer me. And the doctor, when he'd go by, just shake his head and go and then come back in a hurry. And it looked pretty hopeless. But then there was a, a few hours later, the doctor came out. And he looked tired and worn, but he had a trace of a smile on his face as he came over and put his hand on my arm, shook his head in the affirmative, and he said, well, we've, we've made it. We've, we've saved her. And I breathed a prayer of thanks to God and heaven. It wasn't long after that until her folks came in the front door of the hospital. I called them long distance, and they were on the road driving to get there, not knowing what the circumstances would be when they had arrived. And I was so pleased to be able to go and put my arms around them and say, it's, it's all right, you can quit worrying. We're out of the danger area now. But my wife had just been a few days out of the hospital when our little boy, Scotty, had been vomiting and having severe pains. We took him to the Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. They examined him. They told us then he had an abnormality on the brain, but they didn't tell us what that abnormality was. But about three days later, they called us into consultation, and the doctor looked at us and, and would look away and... Then he would look back, and I know he hated to tell us, but he said, I'm sorry, the verdict is there's a tumor on the brain, and he said, we suspect that it's malignant. He gave that tumor a name. He called it an astrocytomic, I believe he called it. And he said, there'll have to be an operation. The days went by, and our little boy got worse worse and finally he contacted spinal meningitis in the hospital and nearly died from that they tried to get him over that for the operation his mother taught him a little song in the hospital and that song was he is able he is able I know my Lord is able to carry me through and I've heard that little fellow singing that way up in the night hours when he couldn't sleep and his arms were full of needles and his too much pain in his head for him to sleep but an hour at a time. But I've heard him sing that in the night hours. The weeks went by and finally, finally, we approached the time when they were to perform the operation. Again, the MP Sayers, the surgeon, took us down into the chapel of the hospital and he shook his head and he said, I can't offer you much hope. Well, I said, Doc, what kind of hope? Could we think in terms of maybe a 50-50 chance? No, Reverend. He said, I'm sorry. Can't offer you that kind of hope. He said, all I can offer you is this. I'm going up at 8 o'clock in the morning to operate on your son. Sir, I trust you to be here in this chapel praying. And he said, if God be pleased, he'll make it. Otherwise, I can't offer you any other hope. We prayed hard, of course, that night. 
My wife and I spent most of the night in prayer. Surgery the next morning at 8 o'clock. We waited eight long hours. That's how long he was in surgery. We waited eight long hours, and finally we were called into the chapel again, and, and the doctor came down and talked to us, and he said, well, we've made it through the surgery. He said, your son is alive. He said, that's all I can tell you at the present time. I'll talk to you a little bit later. They put him into the intensive care unit of the hospital. But when he went down the hall that morning, we got to see him just before he went to surgery. And when he went down the hall that morning on that little table that they take him to surgery on, we stopped the cart right outside the elevator door. And I said to the orderlies and to the nurses that were with him, I said, do we have time for a moment of prayer? And that nurse said, Reverend, we've always got time for prayer. Go ahead and pray. So I bowed my head. My wife and I stood there side by side, and I bowed my head, and we had prayer with our son. I reached over and got him by the hand, and I didn't know whether it would be the last time that I'd ever do that again or not. But I took him by the hand, and I said, Son, we're going to trust Jesus, aren't we? He said, Yes, sir. And I said, we're, we're going to believe that God's will is going to be done, aren't we? Yes, sir. I said, I think we better sing our little song before you go. And so the three of us stood there in the corridor of the hospital and held his hand and sang, I know my Lord is able to carry me through. When we finished singing, he didn't. He went right into the next verse. And as they closed the doors and the elevator, he went out of sight. He was still singing, he is able, he is able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. That's the last we heard as the elevator went up the shaft toward the operating room. Eight hours later, the doctor told us that the operation had been successful in that it, his life was preserved and that the malignancy had been removed from his brain. But other than that, he couldn't tell us anything. He went from that surgery into a deep siege of sickness. And then there came the night when we thought it was all over. We left him in intensive care with his eyes sunk in his head. No responses to any reflex checks. Just almost like a, a dead child. We left him in intensive care. We went over to our room across the hall and across the road to our little room down the hall and where we had stayed for about seven weeks at that time. Got down on each side of the bed, and Mom and I joined our hands together, and we, we prayed, and we said, Now, Lord, if it means pain, suffering, and more of what we've been through and what he's been through for the last seven weeks, maybe he'd be better off in heaven than he would here on earth, if that's your will. Whatever your will is, that's what we want. Folks across the countryside were praying for us. Little lady, 80 years old plus, 84, 85 years old, Mr. Hessler in Delaware, Ohio. She didn't even know we had a sick son, but she said the Lord woke her up in the middle of the night that night and said, pray for the McGinnises. And she said, I got out on my knees and prayed the rest of the night for you and your family, Brother McGinnis, and I didn't even know you had a sick child in the hospital. Down in Nashville, Tennessee, 
A little eight-year-old boy woke his mother up. Brother Mercimer's little boy woke his mother up in the middle of the night crying. She went to his bedside to see what was wrong with him. She said, what's the matter, honey? Are you sick? No, he said he wasn't sick. Well, what's the trouble? Are you afraid? No, I'm not afraid. Well, son, why are you crying? Well, he said, Mommy, you know my little buddy, Scotty, is in the hospital in Columbus, awful sick. And he said, Jesus asked me to pray for him. And he said, I've been praying for him that the Lord would touch him. About 2 o'clock in the morning, phone rang, and I went to answer it, not knowing what the news would be. When I picked up the receiver, the nurse on the other end of the line said, Reverend McGinnis, I said, it is. Now she said, don't get alarmed, Reverend. It's not bad news. It's good news. She said, would you and your wife like to come over to intensive care and join the celebration over here? She said, your son is sitting up in the bed eating a popsicle, singing. The devil is a sly old fox. Would you like to come over and join us? <laughs> yes, we said we would. Down the elevator, across the street, down the hall, and into intensive care. And sure enough, there he sat. His eyes were still back in his head. He was as pale as a ghost. But there he sat with a popsicle in his hand and as much of a smile as he could muster under the circumstances. And he hadn't recognized us for two or three days. And he looked at us and smiled and recognized both of us and went right on with the popsicle and went right on with the song, The Devil is a Sly Old Fox. He recovered some after that, <laughs> but I can remember one dark night walking the corridors of the hospital, and I was so desperately discouraged. I hadn't, I hadn't been in a good church, a service, and in, in, in service in church for so long. We just when we could leave the hospital, and one of us we'd take turns going on Sunday morning to one of the close churches there. But under such strain, it was hard to get anything out of the services. And I was in desperate situation. But as I walked the corridors of that old hospital one night, the words of that old song came to me. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his, can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, hereby faith in him to dwell. I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. And then the words of that song she just sang. The toils of the road will seem nothing when I get to the end of the way. We had a little celebration. Week number eight in the hospital. We had a little celebration because he was, he was coming home. It was Christmas time. And they were trying to fix things so he could get out on a Christmas Eve. And so we were having a little celebration so he could get out on Christmas Eve and be home with the rest of the children. We just finished up our celebration. The doctor had just come in for a final examination. And the look on his face told me there was trouble of some kind. He said, I, I have a few more tests I'd like to run. He said, I know you're planning on taking him out of here today, but he said, uh, maybe we better prolong that another day or two. He said, I, I'm not liking a few of the signs that I'm seeing. And so we discovered the third time now. This was time number three, spinal meningitis, the third time around. 
Two more weeks of isolation. Two more weeks of hospital. But God be praised. Finally, he came out. He came out sightless. He couldn't see. He was blind. But I remember one good part about the whole thing. Little Catholic nurse that took us every time. 25 trips to University Hospital for cobalt treatments. She was the one responsible to ride with us. About 12 trips somewhere along in there. Uh, going every day. About the 12th trip somewhere along in there. And Scott would have his good days and his bad days. And on one of those days when he was up and feeling pretty good, he was up singing songs and and uh, testifying. He'd get out and go down the hall in a wheelchair. And if the nurses had a little child that was discouraged, they'd come and get him, and he'd go down to their room and testify to them. And I heard him out sitting out in the wheelchair getting ready to go for his cobalt treatment. He's sitting there beside of another little boy that had the same thing that he had, little Ricky. And Ricky was crying. And Scott reached over and got a hold of Ricky's hand and took it. He said, don't cry, Ricky. He said, if you'll trust Jesus, he'll help you. And as we were going and had gotten to the hospital, this little Catholic nurse, bless her heart, her name was Linda. Linda came and sat right down beside of my wife, and she said, could I ask you some questions, please, Mrs. McGinnis? Well, yes, she said, you can. She said, Mrs. McGinnis, could you tell me again what you call your religion? What is the name of your religion? My wife told her. She said, Mrs. McGinnis, is there just a few people that can uh, have this religion that you have? She said, you know, I'm, I'm a Catholic. I don't know anything. She said, I confess. I don't even know. I don't even know why I'm a Catholic, and I don't really know what a Catholic is. But she said, uh, is this religion that you have, is it for anybody? Can anybody have it? Yes, my wife said, for whosoever will. She said, Miss McGinnis, could I have it? Said, yes, you can, honey. She said, Mrs. McGinnis, is it hard to get? No, honey, it's not hard to get. She said, all you have to do is just confess your sin and believe the Lord. She said, Miss McGinnis, do you have to go to church to get it? Why, no, honey. She said, you, you could get saved right here on this bench in this hall if, if you wanted to. She said, Miss McGinnis, when we get back to the hospital, can you and I go down to the chapel and pray? Yes, she said, we certainly can. Then she said, as soon as we get, we, we get back, I want us to go down to the chapel, and I want you and your husband to pray for me. She said, I've watched you and your husband and this little boy ever since you've been here. And she said, whatever it is that you have, she said, I want some of the same. She said, I, I know that that's what I want. She said, exactly what you have. So when we got back to the hospital, we went down the chapel, and we prayed with Linda, and she confessed her sins and believed God and gave her heart to the Lord. So if we didn't do anything else while we were in the hospital. We converted one Catholic anyway. One, one Catholic got saved. Finally, Scott was out of the hospital, and finally we were making our adjustments. Then I told you about the fire, and I won't labor you with that any longer. 1978, we lost everything we had in the fire. But God restored everything back to us again. And I wish you could meet our little boy. I wish he could have been here in the camp. On prayer meeting night, when I say, all right, does anyone have a testimony? Number one, he won't let anybody else get up before he does. 
number one right now on his feet. His testimony is about always the same, but I have confidence in it because I watch his life. His testimony always amounts to something like, I love the Lord with all my heart. I don't want to go all the way with him, but he means it. I think he really does mean it. He told me the other day, he said he, he liked his school where he goes. He's in the school for the blind. And when we had to take him there and leave him there, I want to tell you something. The word separation means a little bit something different to me now than it used to. Came that time when he couldn't get the help that he needed in the public schools, and so we had to take him to Columbus. And I, it was killing me on the inside. I could hardly stand it. But it had to be done. And so my wife said, now let's don't talk negative about it. Let's talk about it like it's something wonderful. And so that's what we did. And so in our planning and buying clothes and making arrangements, we were talking about this grand gala event that was coming where he would get to go and be on his own and stay in a big building with a lot of other boys, all blind, of course, but stay in a big building with a lot of other boys and have a big time and all of that. That's the way we talked to him. And he was excited about it. And packing time came. But when my wife brought that suitcase out and set it down by the front door and those clothes to go with it, and I started putting those things in the trunk of the car, if you're a father or mother, you can understand this. He was 12 years old. Take him on a Monday, leave him all week, and go get him on a Friday. We thought we could handle it pretty good. But the further down the road I got, Brother Sheehorn, the worse it got. And when I pulled up in front of that big brick building and got out and took his suitcase in one hand, took him on the other arm and led him in there and saw those old barrack-type beds and metal cabinets for clothes. And Then we took him down to the cafeteria where he was to eat. And they plan it, you know, so that you have to leave them right at the beginning of a meal. That's psychology. But when we took him in and put him in his place at the table, and had already put his clothes in the cabinet, when I went over and put my hand on his shoulder and said, Goodbye, son. Be a good boy, and I'll see you Friday. Mom took it better than I did. Sometimes women are stronger than men. I beat it for the car as fast as I could go because I didn't want the principal to see me cry. And I didn't want my wife because she wasn't crying. I didn't want her to see me crying. So I beat it for the I said, I'll go get the car and bring it around and pick you up. So I went and got the car, got in the car and wheeled it around. And when she come out, I was busy looking out the window on the other side. at something that was interesting over and there wasn't anything over there that I didn't want her to see the tears and that awful lump that was in my throat that I couldn't swallow. We pulled away from the school, and my wife said, "We stop, let's stop and get a bite to eat. I, we stopped, but I couldn't eat. It's hard to eat and swallow with a lump in your throat. Tough to eat. I couldn't eat a bite. I was brokenhearted. I drove all the way home, cried every mile. I think. I never missed a mile. Every mile down the road was a, with more tears and more tears and more tears. Why, well, you say you're just a big old baby. I don't know, but 
You try that sometime and see how easy it is to do. And when I got home, it was, a, it was a Monday evening. Tuesday and Wednesday was the two most miserable days I ever spent in my life. It come Wednesday and I was in no shape to go to church or face anybody or try to lead a prayer meeting or, or stand up before a congregation. I was desperate. And I went into my study and I shut the door and I said, Lord, you have got to help me. I can't go on like this any longer. I need help. And then I'd break down and cry. And then I'd apologize to the Lord. I'd say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm trying to do better. Lord, help me to do better. And I'd say, Lord, I'm going to do better. And I'd get straightened up and I'd get the Bible out and lay it out on my desk and I'd trying to find the scripture lesson for the service that night and I everything run together and then here'd come more tears and I'd cry some more. And finally, I put my head down on the desk and I said, Lord, I hope you understand me. I'm doing the best I can. Please help me to do better. Plain and as clear nearly as I'm talking to you, the Heavenly Father said, I, I understand. I had to leave my son one time hanging on a cross with nails in his hands and a thorn crown on his head while they spit on him and crucified him. I understand your sorrow. I understand. And I understood better from that experience what it meant for Jesus to have to go through what he did and what the Heavenly Father went through to save me from all of my sins. That helped me in a way that I couldn't have been helped any other way. All of a sudden, something like, just like strength came into my soul. I got up from my desk. I closed my Bible. I walked around my desk three or four times. I began to feel better. It wasn't long until I was praising God. I had a shouting spell all over that study. I forgot to get a scripture lesson for the prayer meeting. <laughs> I marched across the parking lot and entered my church with my shoulders back and went to the pulpit and led in a few songs and give an exhortation from my heart. And the Spirit of God came on the service. We had a good prayer meeting. I came out of that prayer meeting. I felt just as strong as I'd ever felt in any of my experience. And I've been enjoying the victory ever since. Praise God. Hallelujah. All the toils of the road will seem nothing when we get to the end of the way. So you have to suffer a little in this world. So you have to suffer a lot in this world. So you have to suffer every day of your life. So the whole time you're allotted, the whole 70 years that you're allotted life in this time, suppose the whole time you never had one day that you didn't suffer pain. Suppose you never had one day that you weren't discouraged. Suppose you never had that first day that you had a friend you could depend on. Suppose every day of your life you was hungry. Suppose every day of your life you was in misery. Suppose you lived all your 70 years here and more and lived it all in abject misery and never had one time of blessing. Never once did you ever get blessed in your soul and feel like shouting. Just 70 years of misery. And then you would die and go to heaven. Would it be worth it? 
Would it be worth it? It would. It would be worth it. Now, the good news I bring you is this. You won't need to do that, Brother Shehorn. You can get blessed every once in a while, enjoy old-time religion, and every day's not going to be dark. <laughs> every day's not going to be gloomy. Every day's not going to be pain. Every day's not going to be sorrow. Every day's not going to be trouble. Oh, I know sometimes you think your troubles are, well, they're just never going to end. They just seem to get started, and they can't get stopped, and one hooks on to the other, and it just keeps on going. But I can promise you this one thing. If you can't get out of the trouble you're in, and if you can't get rid of the misery, and if you can't be healed, and if you can't see better days, and if you can't get, then I promise you one thing, when you get through with everything down here, you'll be glad you've been faithful to the Lord Jesus, uh, because what's on the other side is, well, good faith for all the trouble you have to go through to get where you're doing, uh, regardless of how rough the journey is, uh, when you arrive, it's going to be a blessing to you, praise God, to be able to just throw it all aside and walk into the celestial city of God and be enfolded in the arms of the Savior and see what God has laid up in store for them that love and serve him. Yes, the toils of the road will seem nothing when we get to the end of the way. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Thank you.